Welcome to National Disability Services Sector Development Podcast, which takes a look at the NDIS in action for service providers. I'm David Moody, NDS Victorian State Manager, and today we explore transport under the NDIS, surely one of the hottest issues in the scheme. Safe and reliable transport is vital for people with disability to be employed, included in their community, pursue their interests, attend appointments, maintain relationships with loved ones, and an endless list of other factors that contribute to their quality of life. To explore transport under the scheme, I'm joined by some terrific guests in this episode, but before we introduce them, I want to introduce you to two people, Jenny and Simone. Both are employed, socially connected Australians who receive NDIS transport funding as part of their core supports under the scheme. I'd like to share with you their views on transport under the NDIS. It's Jenny McPherson. Is transport part of your plan? Yeah, it is part of my plan and it's gone up and down and it's funding for taxis mainly. To make the money go further, I use mainly buses on local trips okay. and I also use trains and trams in Melbourne. Would you prefer taxis out of public transport? Well, I consider taxis more private. They drop you door to door and they go directly to where you want to go. The mainstream does use private taxis as well. But, yeah, with their having to use maxi-taxis, it can be hard at certain times of day. So there are times when I've got no choice. OK. And where do you get your transport to? I go to my doctor's that's furthest away. In October, I'll be going to Melbourne Airport. I'll catch the bus to Melbourne, then the train and then the tram to work. So what kind of work do you do? I'm an advocate for Valid. And so transport, you rely on transport to get to your job? Yeah. And if it's capped under the NDIS, it could could present big problems. At the moment, I get a statement from the company, which, which I have my contract with, with the taxis, and they take percentage of my what I've used each month to send out that statement. So they take a percentage of my funding. That gets used every month. So I've got to be careful just how I use it and where. It's very hard to keep track of what's left. So we kind of need a little card, which will have our amount on it, say whatever whatever amount you're given, because people are given different amounts according to how they use their according to what level they're at. There are three different levels of taxi funding. I've got the top one of 3,500. So you think there needs to be a tracking system because at the moment it's really hard to track how much you've spent on the taxis? At the moment they can tell you what you've... The statement you get each month tells you what you've spent, but it doesn't tell you what you've got left. left. So you'll ring up and go, I want to go from here to here, point A to point B, and they'll go, I'm sorry, you've run out. Okay, right. And have you, I know you're doing a lot of really great work with advocacy around transport. Is this one of the points that you're raising higher? Yeah, there is a group that was started up last year that was looking around the issues of transport and what other things we might be able to use, like the buses that are part of the day services, like the little mini buses, like the vans, and how can we pull them together so that everyone's not taking individual taxis everywhere. Yeah. Because now with the individualised funding, people are sort of going in the same direction, but they're taking the individual individual taxis everywhere. So two people that might live six minutes apart are taking two different taxis. So you think there needs to be more connection among the people who are using the transport so you can share it all together. Yeah, I mean, yeah. There's, a, there's only about 26 taxis in Geelong all up and since the NDIS has has started, the need has just grown because people are travelling further away. They can now afford to do that, which is a good thing. Yeah, it's great. But the downside is, like, people are travelling more and more and there's just not enough 
taxis to go around. So we need to look at other ways that money, that money that's been allocated for transport, because it doesn't say actually taxis, it says transport. So we need to look, be creative about what other transport we might be able to use. Okay. Can we hire a rental car? Can we hire the buses from Scope or mm-hmm. St Lawrence or Kringle yep. that yep. just sit there over the weekend and refill them, refuel them and give them back? Mm-hmm. How can that be made affordable? Because at the moment the insurance is too high. The liability insurance is too high for us to hire them. That's some great comments there. Thank you. Now, with transport under the NDIS, you said that it's gone up and down in your plan. Can you tell me about that? Well, the first year, they gave the people down in Geelong practically anything we wanted because we were the pilot. We were the pilot, yeah. And then I realised we can't sustain this. It's just really... Like, our taxi thing was... They said to me, for the first six months, I didn't even know I was on the program, and they said... We want a map of your life. So we want you to go out and we want you to live your life. Just live it like a queen and just live your life. So I did that. And then they went, oh, God. During those six months, the ruling changed without my knowledge. And it turned out I was $1,500 over on my transport budget. And I didn't even know. That's because the rulings had changed without my knowledge. no one told you. So... They need to keep us up to date with the rulings, especially on transport. And recently I just discovered at an NDIS meeting that I went to, at a consultation, they were going to try and put transport in with core supports. And by that I mean core supports are what assist me to get up in the morning, shower, go to the toilet, get dressed, put my makeup on what you would do every morning Mm -hmm. before you go to work. Then when you run out of your transport money, there are people that might say, oh, you can just use some of your care hours. It doesn't matter. But then you'll just run out of care hours and there'll be no one to get you up in the morning. So they must be in separate line items and it must be clear about this is your budget and you must be able to keep track of it because how can you be responsible? If we're told that we've got choice and control, but we've also got to learn rights and responsibility and what we've got left. What would you like to see changed from transport under the NDIS? I would like to see that card, definitely the development yep. of that card, because I think it would be just a one-off card. It's like the Maxi Taxi card. I don't know if you've seen them. It's just like a little plastic card. It's just like a little credit card, really. They slip it in like an FPOS machine in the cap and and allows each state has their limit, like Victoria's 50% off. I think Tasmania's 75%. So then what we would do is put that card in. It takes 50% off the fare. And what's remaining would go on our NDIS card with our name on it. And then we could see they'd give us a printout and would give us what's left on the card. But transport's a big issue for a lot of people. A lot of people are running out um, early, and I'm talking six months early, and then they just they can't go anywhere. They're, they're stuck. And now they're saying, because in the beginning they said, you know, this is to fund your transport costs. Now they're saying this is to assist So they've changed the wording purely because they can't keep up. And we need to be part of those decisions and they need to understand why transport is so crucial. And if they want us to get out and about in the community and make choices and become part of the mainstream, it's going to cost more in transport than just going to and from the same day centre every day where it's all mapped out. Why do you think you've had a positive experience? Well, it can be a good thing, but I've been outspoken and knowing what I want and knowing what I need. So this year, do you have any goals that you want to achieve? Yeah, (laughs) be kept employed. It's a lot of travelling, I know, but I love it. You love what yeah, you do. Yeah, yeah, I do. And you know I wouldn't do it. 
No. I wouldn't do it if I didn't like it. Mm-hmm. So, and I wouldn't have um, accepted the job if I didn't like it. Yeah. So, you know, I, I love, absolutely love it. Do you have any other thoughts or comments that you would like to share with me about transport under the NDIS? Ola was part of the NDIS from the conception because I was the Every Australian um, Counts campaigner. Ah. So I've seen it evolve. But it has gone back a little bit, which is a bit disappointing in the way of people not getting the transport needs of what they should be. Okay, so is that to do with the planning process, do you think? definitely, yeah, definitely. Because there's not enough funding to go in there. So people have to not go to programs and do the things that they need to do. And if you tell that to a person with autism, some of them don't understand with why they can't go. All they know is that they can't go to a program and they don't understand why. Because okay. you can't explain it to them. Yeah. So that makes it hard for parents so hard. and, you know, for support workers that work with them that they can't go to program because of this, you know. And that puts a lot of pressure on parents and um, caregivers and um, support workers if they were support workers because they have to um, find a way to get them where they need to go. So if the NDIA would make it easier for people can, to get to where they need to go, then that would make it a lot easier to tailor suit individual needs. All right, with that context about the participant experience of transport under the scheme offered by Simone and Jenny, let's now consider how NDS is dealing with the transport issue and how our members are reporting that they are dealing with it through the National NDIS Issues Register. The register enables NDS to be aware of the NDIS issues that affect the operations of your organisation so we can advocate for change where it's needed. We sat down with our National NDIS advisor, Stephanie Worsterling, who offered some insights into current transport issues that are keeping our sector, and frankly, NDS, up at night. As the uh, national peak body for non-government disability service organisations, NDS has been advocating strongly on a range of NDS issues since uh, the scheme's inception in 2013. One of the most common areas of issues that we receive from members is related to transport, and it's complex, as we've heard from other speakers on this podcast, and the complexity arises from the interaction of several factors. The NDIS transport funding levels are often inadequate to cover the costs for participants to participate in social and economic life. They're fairly arbitrary amounts based on previous arrangements related to the Commonwealth Mobility Allowance. It's related to participant choice, the future of taxi subsidy schemes, the financial viability of provider-owned vehicles, fleets, and the interaction with community transport and the accessibility of public transport. This issue is further exacerbated in regional and remote communities, whereby if, for example, providers do start to divest in their fleets, participants will have less opportunity to realise the full potential of their NDIS funding and further isolate them from the community. Transport is a live debate. Many of you will be aware that the McGarrigal case was tested and appealed and tested again and the federal court ruled that the NDIA must fully fund the reasonable and necessary supports, meaning that NDIS participants living in rural areas and unable to drive or use public transport must be funded for the full cost of transport assistance. But we do know that this has real implications for scheme viability The agency has said that it has the potential to affect 34,000 NDIS participants and will increase cost pressures on the scheme. So the real challenge is striking the balance between funding for participant transport and scheme viability. In July 2018, NDS released a paper called Getting Transport on Track. 
it does outline the key issues relating to transport and provides eight key recommendations on how to get transport on track. It is available on our website, so head to nds.org.au and hop onto the NDIS Issues Register to download the document. We really welcome any further feedback from members on how this issue is impacting on your organisation and how we can support you with any practical information or advice. In July, NDS also launched our help desk, and I encourage any provider to hop on and ask any NDIS or disability employment-related question. To access this, hop on our website, nds.org.au forward slash help desk. So, a lot to consider there. NDS looks forward to keeping our members updated in the picture regarding these issues over the journey. So, with that context from Jenny, Simone and Stephanie, I'd like to introduce our studio guests who are buckled up and ready to go. You may well believe that that was actually put in my script. To discuss transport under the NDIS, what we can do within the current transport parameters to support people with disability and where we should go to improve transport under the scheme. We're joined today by studio guests, transport and fleet management experts, Nick Kotsonis and James Eamon from Street Fleet. We also welcome our NDS team, Liza Brown-Pinsky, our Senior Policy Officer, and Pascal Dreyer, back again as our NDIS Transition Advisor. Hi, David. Pascal, how does the NDIS support people with disability to get around? So we heard from the two participants that they've been funded directly in their NDIS plans to access transport supports. That's certainly one mechanism. That is generally in an item that's identified separate from your core supports. But that's that's not the only way that the scheme itself supports people to get around. So if, if people require some capacity building support to build their capacity and, and develop their capability to catch public transport, the NDIS will also fund capacity building travel training like supports. So d- depending on the individual's needs and where they're at in their life, the agency will make that reasonable and necessary decision to determine the separate allocation in your plan because as a result of your disability, you are not able to catch public transport. There are some additional considerations where you live and considering where those services are that you access or whether or not you have demonstrated capability to catch public transport. It's just that you need a little bit of support to be able to. So does that mean, for example, Pascal, if you're miles away from where your service is or your preferred service is, that by definition, you're going to get the cost of transport to get to that service as part of your plan? Absolutely not. So in in terms of understanding whether or not someone will be eligible for that explicit set of transport funding within their plan, there are several considerations. And the agency have gone through this in a great deal of depth and it considers essentially the reasonable and necessary framework with an additional overlay of, I suppose, considering that according to the COAG applied principles, the NDIS is not responsible to ensure that the public transport is adequate and that state and territory governments are responsible for maintaining, upkeeping and expanding their public public transport offerings and also ensuring that they're accessible. And that, of course, Pascal, is exactly what every state and territory government has been doing ever since the tune of millions of dollars worth of extra funding for accessible transport. Is that right? And, and, and that's a really interesting point, David, because I remember in one of my first presentations on transport in Central Highlands in Ararat. And I made a comment around the eligibility of transport funding and you need to consider public transport options that are available. And they just laughed. They all laughed at me because obviously in regional areas, the public transport isn't available, but if it is available, it's often not accessible, which obviously is an additional barrier, particularly for people who might have mobility issues or mobility support needs. So we're talking about a regional area in Victoria, 140 kilometres outside the uh, capital city or thereabouts. Yeah, that's right. So, and I suppose this starts to really highlight some of the issues with transport under the NDIS, because as transport is a mainstream service system, you've got that broad overlay of the COAG applied principles, which essentially dictate that the NDIS categorically 
are not responsible for ensuring that there is adequate and accessible public transport for that individual. So then what they consider is whether or not someone has the capacity to catch that public transport and whether or not they are able to do so. Okay, well, look, thanks for that. I think it actually segues nicely into our next question, which I'm going to address to Nick and James from Street Fleet. To both of you, what transport options and opportunities are currently available for service providers? Well, I think if we look historically at what the service providers have been doing with, with their motor vehicles, they historically actually buy their vehicles and own them, and that's a very capital-intensive way of managing fleets. Now we're looking at different products to actually assist those service providers to retain the fleets in the best way they can. So those sort of opportunities will be actually leasing those vehicles so we can actually lease vehicles to organisations so that there's just a one-set monthly payment and budgeting is very easy for them. If they do own those assets, you can actually do a sale and lease back where we actually buy those vehicles back from the organisation and lease them back to them. And you're obviously using this model not only in Victoria but other parts of Australia? Yeah, right across the country, absolutely. Okay. There's still a lot of unsurety in the marketplace from the NDIS and organisations are still very apprehensive about really changing anything in their fleets. And what we're seeing is many are just holding onto those vehicles, not really trying to rock the boat too much, especially with how many changes have come through with the way that transportation funding has been outlined in the NDIS. So it's still slow, but I think eventually these organisations will see that this is probably the right way for them to look at transport. So is leaseback the only model that you're working with? It's not the only model. There's straight leasing for new vehicles, but probably the most exciting product that we're working with at the moment is really around collaboration and asset sharing. So we've actually developed an online platform called Carl, carlride.com, and that allows disability service organisations to actually share their vehicles with other disability service organisations and people living with a disability alike. Is this the fleet management platform model that we've heard so much about? This is a little bit separate from that, from the fleet management side of things. So this is essentially just a platform that just allows for that sharing. So what we're trying to help organisations with there is to, and certainly what we're finding is many of these vehicles are very capital intensive. And what we're seeing as well is many are not being fully utilised. So we're providing them with that income to be able to generate some more revenue from from those very expensive assets. Okay. And Nick, do you have anything to add at this stage? One of the things that I've observed over my travels and over the journey, being involved with A, providing commercial transport to the public, B, working in, in a space where I've been involved with modifying vehicles and now in this fleet management space, I notice that every time I see a commuter bus, I have a look to see if it's modified. We often get a phone call and we'll have people say to us, we need access to a vehicle. Now, there's a modified vehicle that's sitting somewhere, not being used, that could possibly be making money for an organisation. You can virtually see the depreciation oozing out of it. That's absolutely correct. (laughs) And understanding that vehicles cost a lot of money to modify and knowing that historically the, the sector has really seen one type of vehicle or one type of modification as the workhorse of the industry, so to speak. Now, quite often, car parks in schools or at swimming pools or shopping centres are underground or behind bollards. These larger vehicles can't access those car parks. Mm. So there'd be vehicles that are probably more suited for that type of transport. And those vehicles would also give the participant that's travelling in that vehicle the opportunity to feel a little bit closer to the driver, so a smaller vehicle. Pascal, I might return to you just for a second. What are some of the key aspects of how transport is funded under the NDIS that providers should be aware of, in your view? Well, it must satisfy those reasonable and necessary criteria and really also considers as well that while there are benchmarks in terms of, you know, you, you hear that you've got the capped funding for transport, they, they specify, you know, in, in, in what terms, you know, someone who's accessing employment supports or community access supports, what level they may receive. But that absolutely does not mean that people are not capable of getting something different. It really it goes back to evidence, David, to understanding that reasonable and necessary framework. If you look at some of the AAT decisions that have come out regarding transport, and there have been um, and there's also been another one, Perosh. I think it's pronounced Perosh um, versus the agency. And that considers a gentleman living in a, not a regional, but but a, an area um, in New South Wales that's a little bit outside of Sydney. And there is public transport available, but due to the individual's disability support needs and, and because his goals relate to education and 
future employment and he is accessing education supports. The agency were actually found um, that they had to fund around 4000 Around $4,000 per annum. So certainly um, we've seen from the AAT that the agency is required to fund the full cost of transport. It's just about putting that case together, which granted is very time intensive for participants. So the responsibility for putting that case together falls upon the participant and their supporters. And then by some extent, our providers as well. So our members, NDS members, often will assist participants to get this information together and appreciating that that kind of work is unfunded. So there's many complexities here. I think another point to make around the way that transport is funded under the NDIS is thinking about the flexibility of funding. It's important to note that core supports are generally flexible. If people, for example, choose to manage their transport funding as periodic payments, so that means that they directly receive that money that has been allocated for transport into their own bank account for their use, if they receive all of their money as periodic payments, they are not able to use their core supports flexibly. You've got your core supports, which sits separately on your plan, and then you've got your transport allocation. Yep. Sometimes there's a node of transport in core. That's very rare. If your entire transport allocation is going directly into your bank account, you cannot access then your other funding, your other core supports to supplement, for example, additional transport monies or transport dollars that you need to access. Also, if someone has not been funded for transport, so if categorically there's no transport funding within their plan, they also cannot use their core supports to access transport So what do they do? It's out of their own pocket, David. Liza, how has the NDIS impacted on the way that providers deliver transport support in your experience? Well, I guess... The first way to think about it is that the NDIS has meant the end of block funding for service providers and providers can no longer cross-subsidise their transport costs. And I think it's really showing how transport costs were never properly funded in the past. So providers often had to subsidise their transport costs using other money that they received. Some of the limitations on how participants can use their transport funds, that providers are finding it difficult to use people's transport budgets to cover the costs of transport. We've known for a long time that transport's really expensive, especially for people with disability. There are few efficient platforms to deliver disability transport. So some people may remember in November of last year, we ran a workshop on transport and it was really clear that there's few efficient online platforms to deliver efficient transport that takes into account all the different considerations about the type of vehicle people need, the type of supports they need, where they're going at what time. So it's not very efficient to deliver disability transport. In addition, the transition to the NDIS has also, I guess, come alongside a reduction in community transport funding. So we're seeing community transport operators struggling to make those types of services work. We're also seeing councils moving away from this space. So there's a lot of potentially big players in disability transport that are sort of reconsidering their role in how they provide disability transport. So local government's getting out of the business of providing community transport, is that what we're saying? Yeah, so they're moving away from disability services broadly, and that will also include disability transport. The main thing we hear from providers is they just they can't find the money for it. They can't figure out how to make it work efficiently. Providers, you know, they want to provide the best, the safest, the most reliable service to people, but they just don't see from a business perspective where they can find the money for that. Most of the vehicles are quite old and they're sort of run down and some providers are saying all we can really afford to buy is vehicles that are sort of, we can sort of run into the ground. Mm. So... But at the same time, providers are saying, well, I can't, I have to provide this service to people. They need some way to get to my service. I need some way to get out in the community and out of the house. And we know that we're a provider who can do it and we want to do it as long as we can. So we'll run it at a loss rather than not running it at all if it means supporting people to get to the services they they want to and need to get to. That's what we're hearing from a lot of providers. I think another point to highlight from what Liza said is the fact that the transition to the NDIS really has thrown a lot up in the air. And one of the things that that we've very quickly realised is that the mobility allowance transitioning over to the NDIS as well. And, and what people are actually being funded for is, is really more reflective of the mobility allowance. So that doesn't actually take into account the funding that providers may have received directly, particularly here in Victoria, from DHHS to support them to maintain their fleets. Right. And alongside that as well is that with the block funding model, providers had more scope and capacity to actually 
cross-subsidise their transport offerings. So essentially, you know, there's an expectation that providers are delivering transport services to participants. They might be taking them out in the community, they might be supporting them to get to their service, but there's not really a real appreciation within the allocation of transport funding and participant plans for the true cost for a provider to operate their vehicle. And I think on top of that, an additional overlay is considering that previously, a lot of the time participants weren't paying for transport for service providers. Because the alternative is that in many cases, you've got otherwise viable mission-based organisations potentially facing administration if in fact they have to actually maintain their current transport provisioning under their own organisational budget. If I may, I might just wanted to make one more point, I guess the shortfall in, in transport funding, a huge impact on families and we're hearing that some providers who are starting to say, we actually can't operate this anymore, they're turning to families and saying, either you need to give us more of a contribution to cover transport costs, or you'll have to drive your family member yourself. And families are getting to their wits end about how they can ensure that their loved one is able to get around in the community. And some families are picking up the tab and they're driving people around, but some families are saying, it's a matter of me keeping my job, remaining employed, or driving my loved one. And it's a really mm. difficult decision for people to make. And we have been privy to conversations where um, that's meant that the loved one in, in question has found themselves in the lounge room of their parents' home, basically being unable to get to services, which in the past they have been able to access because they've had access to that block-funded transport. Um, so, James Eamon from uh, Street Fleet, I wonder if I could turn to you now and say, what are you guys seeing in terms of the transport sector at large and how it's responding to the NDIS? Well, I guess what we're really seeing. And uh, initially, as I said before, organisations were sort of in, a, in a, a bit of a stasis point that no one was really making any decisions waiting to see what happened. But now what's more worrying for us is we're seeing organisations are actually handing their vehicles back altogether. A lot of these organisations who previously were providing transportation as part of their day-to-day services are now saying, we cannot make this work. We don't want anything to do with transport anymore. Can I jump in there, James, and ask you, I'm mindful of the fact that this is a podcast for Victorian providers, but the NDIS is a national scheme mm. and Street Fleet is a national organisation. Mm-hmm. Is your description of the environment applicable to the rest of Australia and not just Victoria? Absolutely. That's a real concern for us. And I think as well for the wider disability community that we are, these vehicles, and even some of these organisations are in regional and remote areas as well. And we're losing, potentially losing all or the majority of those fleets in those areas. And those accessible vehicles are disappearing from available stock. That's a real issue for us. So I think if we get back to Pascal's point before, I think sharing of these assets and also the interviews that we heard at the top, sharing these assets really needs to be a crucial part of these solutions, not only for organisations, but for families as well. We've been contacted by quite a few families who are in a great position where they actually have an accessible vehicle themselves and are looking to share that with other families and with other service providers as well. And I think we need to be pooling those assets because there's so many cost pressures at different levels. And when we talk about those assets and that sharing, we're not just talking about the sharing of disability transport per se, are we? We're talking about what might come under the heading of community transport, whether it be for people who are ageing, people with disability, people with health issues. That sharing is capable of being done across a range of different community service types. Certainly what we're hearing is in the aged care sector, there's a huge amount of demand right across the country for these wheelchair accessible vehicles and even just buses in general to move their clients around. So is sharing the only, if you like, silver bullet to resolve this issue? Are there other innovative solutions that are being developed that you're aware of? There are quite a few different things that are happening in the marketplace. Organisations are now and fleet management companies using technology to try to give better transparency on what's happening with the fleet. And I think if we look again, historically, organisations own their vehicles, they're also not really sure what their vehicles were doing on a day-to-day basis. So now we have the technology where we can track usage of vehicles and we can actually see what is the utilisation on this fleet. And interestingly, what we're finding is it's not uncommon for vehicles to be used less than an hour a day. They're the innovative solutions that everyone can use to really understand what their fleets are doing and where the best use of funding needs to go. Because I suppose in terms of our ability to actually leverage what might become big data when it comes to where these vehicles are going and where they're not going for that matter, that then informs how we can optimise the usage of those vehicles and also understand the needs and wants of people with disability in the case of our sector in terms of where they want to go and when they want to go and how they want to get there. I wonder if I might ask all of you now, what are some of the ways the sector has responded to issues around transport? That's a very general question, but I want us to 
to actually, if you like, take it up the next level, if you will. We've talked in terms of the detail around the NDIS and the pricing guide and making transport work. We've talked in terms of the innovation that Street Fleet is introducing into the sector through sharing of, of vehicles and the leveraging of assets. What are we seeing generally in terms of how the sector, our sector, has responded to transport issues? Well, I guess they th- a lot of the responsibility for transportation then goes back onto public transport. It goes back onto access taxis and the problems that we all know that that you know around wait times and reliability of those transport solutions as well. So it puts more pressures back onto the public purse in a different way. How else are providers responding to these risks? I mean, for example, as I understand it, what some of them are doing, some of our members are doing, is in encouraging NDIS participants, their clients, to avail themselves of local taxi services. Is that the experience of others in the room? Certainly in my discussion with our members, it's it's clear that people do not yet want to get rid of their transport offering because they view it as a unique proposition value in terms of being able to pick you up and take you to their service. And because it's something that they've historically done for quite a long time, I think they're really struggling in terms of understanding how they can continue to do that. And I think one of the ways that we've seen providers respond is really re-looking at their transport offering as well. So one of the ways that a couple of providers have approached this is rather than thinking about your offering as I'm transporting this individual from point A to point B, it's about understanding does this individual need specialised support while they're being transported? Yes or no? And if the answer is yes, then that's within their remit to say, all right, well, because our people who operate our vehicles are also support workers, are capable of supporting people in in cases where there might be significant behaviours of concern or people might have complex medical needs and maybe also adding other staff on, on their vehicles to be capable of then supporting those individuals and looking at their transport offering that way rather than thinking of it as as I said, from point A to point B, it's about a support offering. Other innovations that we're seeing, people? So from one provider in particular, we have heard that as the provider looked ahead to see what transport was covered in the NDIS, they really encouraged more programs in the local community. So I guess thinking about ways to rely less on transport and to think about shorter times travelling from home to where the program is. All right, if we might struggle to have our transport costs covered, let's think about ways to keep people closer to home, not at home, but more looking at how they can be involved in their local community. And that would be an option, I would imagine, which lends itself in particular to regional Australia, um, where you've got regional hubs in particular. Yeah, I'd say so. I do want to mention one thing, and that is that the organisations that we talk about are experts and specialise, and their mission is to care and to look after people. So commercially, their thoughts on transport are very, very different to a commercial transport provider. Up until NDIS came in and they had to really consider how they operate transport, vehicles and their fleets were an overhead. Now, vehicles and their fleets need to, in some way, shape or form, be commercial for them as well. Some of these organisations may need that mentoring to understand how they need to then charge for that transport component. Now, we know that when someone travels for work, the reimbursement is about is 66 cents per kilometre. We know that in a taxi, if you're travelling, your metered fare is about $1.87 to $2.20 a kilometre, depending on which state you're travelling in and if there is a separate tariff, so to speak. How can these service providers then formulate a charging regime for their participants that they need to take from A to B. It's a very, very commercial operation for them and it's they've got to start thinking outside the square. We look at the changes in Victoria and the introduction of the commercial passenger vehicle licence, which we hear the state government spruiking and they're saying that they may open opportunity. My biggest fear for that is that although it's $53.80 to register your vehicle commercially, there are other costs. So to be a driver of that vehicle, you need a driver's accreditation, which is around about $70 per, I think, every three years. Then there's also $110 for a medical that you need to pass. Then if you're a wheelchair accessible taxi operator or a driver of a commercial vehicle that caters for people within a wheelchair, then you also need additional specialised training. And then add to that the $1 Uber levy which you now need to charge as part of the, or for the state revenue office. So 
are they all costs that these providers are going to have to have to bear? And James and I have had this discussion before, and the point you make, James, about these organisations needing to somehow need to be exempt from those requirements. Exempt from the provisions of the commercial passenger vehicle reforms that basically are currently in place in terms of the fees and costs. That's right, and also have that consideration of the multi-purpose taxi program in Victoria or the taxi subsidies that are available in other states. We know that applies to a metered fare. So if you don't have a meter in the vehicle, how are you going to logically charge or apply the subsidy. That's not even getting into the debate as to whether or not the MPTP is in scope of the the NDIS funding contribution from the Victorian government. Liza, just on that point, what are the broader policy changes to the taxi sector in Victoria that providers of disability services and transport should be aware of? Well, it is really difficult to talk about disability transport and not talk about the future of the MPTP, the multi-purpose taxi program, and to not talk about the broader taxi reforms. So people may be aware that there are more Ubers on the roads, there are new taxi competitors on the roads, so that's all part of the taxi reform. So we now operate under the commercial passenger vehicle industry, so that essentially opened up the taxi sector to other commercial operators to drive similar to a taxi. So the reforms around this space have really opened up the sector, so it's a very marketized market-based sector, and they've really tried to reduce the barriers to entry for vehicle operators. So instead of the high barrier to entry for taxis, now it's, as Dick mentioned, there are still there are several charges and fees to operate, but they really tried to open the space for other competitors to enter. We've also alluded to the uncertain future of the multi-purpose taxi program. So at the moment, if someone is in the NDIS, they remain eligible for this program. They have their taxi card. And we heard from one of the NDIS participants earlier in the podcast about their taxi card. So they receive 50% subsidy to their taxi fare. And other elements of this program are really important to note. So there's what's called the lift fee. So anytime a wheelchair accessible taxi operator picks up someone in a wheelchair, they receive a $15 lift fee. So it's really an incentive to actually pick up people who are in a wheelchair. And every time someone uses their car, they also have a reduced fare for that. So it really alters the market a bit, but it really makes it more attractive to drive people who are in wheelchairs. So until the middle of next year, people who are in the NDIS remain eligible for the program. But beyond that, we don't know what will happen. So it's possible that the funding for that program will be in scope of the NDIS. So that will be part of Victoria's contribution to the NDIS. And the money that people used to access through the program, the assumption is that that money will somehow be allocated in their NDIS plan. And in my conversations with taxi operators, I guess this uncertainty about the future of the program means that taxi operators are hesitant to buy new wheelchair-accessible taxis. They don't know what's going to happen in the future. They don't know if they should be investing more heavily in this space or getting rid of their fleets. And we've realised that this uncertainty is approaching. It's imminent. But I guess not, not knowing what's happening means that providers or taxi operators are, I guess, more hesitant to, to know, I guess, how to, whether they want to go further in this direction or move away from the accessible vehicles. We might treat this podcast as a shout out to the Victorian government to provide the clarity that clearly the sector is demanding and needs in regards to particularly the future of the MPTP and its potential implications if it does disappear in terms of being available to NDIS participants, its implications for community transport in particular. I'd almost go a little bit further than that, David, and say we need assurance from from the Victorian government that MPTP does not go into the NDIS and that it remains available to participants. All right, so I'm going to ask a question which, if you like, is a bit out of left field, but why would a government basically want to maintain the MPTP if it's already offered up the funding for it to the NDIS as part of its contribution in the funding envelope for the scheme? What's the policy argument for actually maintaining it? Well, we're really concerned at the moment. I mean, even with this program, we hear so many stories of people with disability in a wheelchair who don't get picked up by a taxi. And if we're hearing from service providers that if they're considering divesting of their fleet and they're saying, as a last resort, there's always a taxi. And we do hear that from providers. And if we don't have this program anymore, yes, there might be taxis, but they might not actually pick people up. And we see the mechanisms within the program are so vital to ensure that there are wheelchair accessible vehicles on the road, that people are able to afford the fare and that they'll actually get picked up. And if we don't have that program and if the money is just in people's plans, there's no guarantee that the market that's sort of propped up by this program, if that will be able to continue. And that's the policy argument for actually going down that path. 
And I think that's a very important point to make, and it should be highlighted as well, the fact that the MPTP doesn't just reduce the cost of transport to people directly, it actually provides an incentive to the market to run accessible vehicles. And without that incentive, there's a huge risk. And it's not just a a theoretical risk, it's a very real risk that people will then divest themselves of their accessible vehicles. We know providers are going out the door backwards in terms of offering transport supports and divesting themselves of their fleets. What it will mean is that people will be waiting for far longer than they already are to get picked up. If not, they will not get picked up at all which means that they will, again, stay at home. And it's not even a question about then, are you being funded adequately in your transport funding? Because who cares? You're not going to get anywhere anyway. What advice do all of us have for the sector in terms of what actions should providers take to help improve transport options for participants? Open slather, people. I think the first thing is probably don't panic. I think, as I said before, we're seeing a lot of organisations just sitting and waiting. And I think what they need to be doing is actively reviewing what they're doing with their transportation. Like a frog in a pot of boiling water. That's exactly right. (laughs) Unfortunately, on this one, it is coming and we need to be putting plans in place now. And there should be some good fleet management plans that uh, bring in all of the things that we've talked about today to really help them through that period. I think it's really promising some of what James has mentioned earlier about how we can use technology to understand fleet utilisation and to understand how we can pool some of the resources a bit better. I suppose my perspective as the NDIS transition advisor and having a real sort of focus on the NDIS policy and what providers can and can't do under the NDIS, my word of advice to providers would be claim accurately for transport services. Don't implement any workarounds, not only because it actually is not correct to do so from a compliance perspective, but also you're actually covering the gaps in the transport sector, I suppose monies or funding available to participants by implementing workarounds. Claim accurately, deliver what you can, and don't meet the gap where government and the NDIS are not stepping up to the plate. I've got to ask you though, if they don't meet the gap, what's the outcome? It's not a great one. It's a really difficult conversation to have, but it's a really important one to have. And one that I do try to have in a number of different sort of contexts with providers is that you are doing yourselves as an organisation, as a business, a huge disservice by carrying services that are, are not making you money, by doing things for free. You're doing yourselves a huge disservice by doing things for free that are then meaning that your financial viability is placed at risk. From, that's from the organisation's perspective. Moving on forward, actually, from a whole sector perspective and from an NDIS perspective, you're doing the scheme a disservice. It's a really difficult conversation to have, but if people keep on me- meeting those gaps, the NDIS will never know and will never need to know. They will never need to respond to those issues because providers will keep on picking up the tab. So what advice do you have for the sector? What actions should providers take to help improve transport options for participants? If there was an opportunity to collectively get a group of service providers together, providers that have got fleets, providers that have got challenges, and we could design or develop a strategy based on the vehicles or the assets that they have within their fleets, how they need to be utilised, and what the needs of their participants are, we could come up with something. I think James has got a point on one particular area. So this is is a major issue, obviously, in regional areas where where there are not many vehicles and there's not a lot of public transport or taxis or anything like that. And we've been talking with Bendigo City Council. I hope they don't mind me mentioning that. I'm sure they won't. Exactly what Nick is saying. Uh, About a year ago, they convened all of their disability service providers together. And I'd love to take credit for it, but I won't. They came up with the idea of actually saying, rather than having the community raising money to buy vehicles for individual organisations, let's have the community actually raise money to buy a single vehicle or several vehicles that the whole community can share and actually collaborate on. And that was one of the solutions that they were putting forward as an option for regional transport. And how far advanced is that option now? Not too much further than what I just said, to be perfectly honest, but we're exploring that with them again. I've been back in contact and we're trying to reconvene that meeting just to see if that is something that's worthwhile. But I think that just makes sense to me as a possible solution for that regional transport issue. Just one more thing, and that is understanding how much it costs to modify a vehicle. So you'll have an organisation that'll have a vehicle that's modified and it's a $70,000 asset that's sitting there. And that vehicle needs to be used 
And then, like we said earlier, having the access to smaller vehicles. So there may be another organisation that has a smaller vehicle, which is a little bit friendlier. Now, if you need to go to an appointment from, say, Bendigo into Melbourne and you need to go out to the Royal Melbourne Hospital, parking isn't is a massive issue. However, you can't get into an underground car park with a certain vehicle. If there is another organisation that has a vehicle in their fleet that you could utilise in lieu of using your own vehicle, then we've got that strategy. It's basically a game of chess or like a football team and a coach gets to pick which players that they need. You could do that with vehicles very, very easily. Okay, well, look, thanks very much for that. That's a wrap. Thanks to all of you for taking part in this discussion and providing a comprehensive overview on the current and complex landscape of transport under the NDIS. Until further clarity is provided by the agency, we hope this episode helps strengthen your understanding of transport under the scheme. By adopting a collaborative approach across our sector, together we're confident we can get somewhere with this challenging issue. Thanks for tuning in. My name's David Moody, State Manager for NDS in Victoria, and I look forward to catching you next time for our innovation-focused Reporting on Outcomes episode. If you found this podcast helpful, hit the subscribe button and a new episode should automatically appear on your device once released. If you have any operational questions about the NDIS or disability employment, you can head over to our NDS help desk and ask. Available as part of your NDS membership or free for those in Victoria and Queensland thanks to funding from their respective state governments. Head to nds.org.au forward slash helpdesk. NDS has produced a range of resources to assist Victorian service providers navigating NDIS operations for their business. Head to nds.org.au forward slash SDP to visit our NDIS sector development project website where you can access valuable information and resources in our NDIS resource library, find podcast show notes, access our free online 24-7 NDIS help desk, subscribe to our monthly e-newsletter and find information and registration links for our NDIS readiness and implementation workshops, which we host right around Victoria in regions currently undergoing NDIS transformation. That's nds.org.au forward slash SDP. The Sector Development Podcast is a production by National Disability Services, copyright 2018. The podcast is produced with funding from the Victorian State Government's NDIS Transition Support Package. 